We're your hosts, Dana and Kara, and this is From the Mouths of Babes. Hey, babes. Welcome back. We are so excited to have you join us for another episode. And we are so sorry for the technical difficulties we experienced the last couple of weeks with our episode not uploading to Apple Podcasts, but hopefully you guys are able to catch back up. This week, we are so excited to have a male point of view again, which we don't have very often. Today, we welcome Dr. Fred Dodini. He has been a therapist, life coach, and family life educator for the past 20 plus years and resides in Indianapolis, Indiana. He has enjoyed the diversity of life's experiences through careers in the entertainment industry, which included traveling with a rock and roll band for over eight years in business and behavioral health. He has been married for 48 years and is the father of 10 children and the papa to 32 grandchildren. He recently published a book entitled Shine Brighter, Choosing a Life of Greater Clarity, Purpose, and Joy. And if you'll remember, we did have him on an episode near the beginning of season one, and he is our dad, our papa, Fred Dodini. Welcome. Thank you. It's also been really fun because he's getting ready to start his own podcast as well. And so he'll be able to talk more on his podcast. And so we're excited to share that um, when that gets published. But today we will be discussing his book and we are super thrilled to welcome him to the podcast again. Thank you, ladies. So first, let's talk about the concept or the basic premise of the book. So first, can you tell us what I'd like the general idea is behind your book and how it came about. The whole book really is based on the premise that there are three kinds of people in the world. I refer to them as sun people, moon people, and star people. Originally, the idea of three, you see that number show up a lot, um, various religious wisdom traditions and things throughout the world. I started my book with a conversation about the the famous marshmallow study that was done at Stanford with nursery school kids back in the early 70s to test their ability to delay gratification. And they fell into three different groups, those who were not able to wait, those who tried to wait but couldn't, and those who successfully waited the 15 minutes to get the second marshmallow. So I build on that number three. Well, the Apostle Paul in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians talks about um, that same division of three, he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. That's where the metaphor originally, uh, you know, kind of came to mind. Um, I began development when I was in graduate school at Purdue. And then when I started to work for the Anazazi Foundation in, uh, in Arizona, it's a wilderness therapy program for troubled teens. And so that's really where it began to take more shape because um, these youth would spend six, seven weeks living in a very primitive environment out in the wilderness of Arizona. And so all they had to deal with was nature. And um, it was a, you know, physically challenging, but um, the good thing about it is that taking them away from their, their friends, their family, their cell phones, their video games, all the distractions in life, they, uh, they encounter nature in, in, a, in a very unique way that I think teaches some very important life lessons. So I was always looking for metaphors in the natural world that these kids were experiencing on a daily basis that we could use to teach them, you know, important principles about making good decisions about their lives. I would, you know, we'd sit out there in the middle of nowhere along a creek bed 
and uh, up in the mountains and talk about life. And I, I remember one conversation with a 17 year old boy who was having a difficult time. And I said, you know, there are three kinds of people in the world. Yeah, what, what do you mean? <laughs> well, there's sun people, moon people and star people. So I'd ask him, what do, you, what do we know about the sun? So it provides light, yes, and warmth, absolutely. And nutrition, vitamin, vitamin D comes from sunlight. Um, sunlight's necessary for photosynthesis, so we have oxygen to breathe, and for plants to grow, so we have food. And the sun uses its mass, its gravitational influence in the solar system to create a beneficial relationship with the earth. So the earth rotates at just the right distance from the sun, not too close or we'd burn up, not too far away or we'd freeze. So really when you think about it, although the sun is the biggest, the biggest you know, sphere in our solar system, the most powerful, it uses its power to serve others. It serves the earth. And so I would talk to him about sun people are the same way. They provide light in the form of wisdom, knowledge, understanding. They provide warmth in the form of compassion and love. They provide nutrition in the form of service to the body, minds, and spirits of other people. And they use their positions in life, their power, their influence, their prestige, their knowledge, their education, their wealth, to serve others. So really, when you think about it, sun people, and we don't see that very often in the world today, where the people with the most power and the most resources focus those things on serving the needs of the weakest and most vulnerable in society. So I would ask these kids, do you know any people like that, sun people? And, and they usually did. And then I'd say, well, what about the moon? What do we know about the moon? Well, the moon doesn't produce its own light. It just gets what's reflected from the sun. And so half of the moon always faces the sun. The other half is always facing the darkness. So the moon is half in the light and half in the dark. And throughout the month, as the earth and the moon go through their orbits and rotation, we see that lit side of the moon from different angles from the earth. So we see less and less of it. So it goes from a full moon down to a little crescent moon or a new moon, which it's you know, pretty much totally blacked out. And then I explain that whole process occurs in a matter of minutes during the lunar eclipse. So it starts with a full moon, and then all of a sudden it starts to wane, starts to get smaller and smaller until it becomes what's called a blood moon, which is the moon is totally blacked out except for a little ring of red light that seems, still seems to reach us on the earth. And then gradually it starts to wax or relight until it's back to a full moon again. And that process only takes maybe a couple hours. And so I'd ask these kids, what, what causes that to happen? Some of them knew. They'd say, well, the earth, the earth gets in the way. Yeah. So the rotation of the earth gets between the sun and the moon and blocks the light of the sun from reaching the moon. I said, moon people are the same way. They let the world get in the way. Their focus in life is on temporal things and on themselves. They want wealth, they want power, they want influence, they want popularity. They want all the temporal things that you know, a lot of us in life need a certain amount of, but that's the primary focus. So the focus is not on others, it's not on the relationships, it's not on serving others as much as it is on serving themselves. So moon people's focus is more on themselves and on temporal things that don't bring lasting happiness. And I'd ask these kids, you know any moon people? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. They knew a lot of moon people. In fact, most of them thought that they were probably a moon person at that point in their life because they were so focused on acceptance, popularity, all those types of things. Well, then I asked about the stars. Stars are just a tiny pinpoint of light in a sea of darkness. They don't provide much light at all and no warmth. So if you blocked out the moon and all the stars in the night sky and just left one star, even if it was the North Star, it wouldn't be enough light to see your hand in front of your face. Star people prefer the darkness. What little light they may have in their life, they don't, they don't focus on. It doesn't, they don't value it. So star people are about power, about control, about domination. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they kill if necessary to get what they want, which is power, control over others. And I'd ask these kids, you know any star people? Oh yeah, yeah, you don't wanna be around those people. That's right, yeah, they're not much fun. Not, they don't really care about other people. So I'd tell these kids, you are here out in the wilderness, it's just you and nature. You're free to make your own decisions in life. And we're not gonna interfere with that. We don't wanna punish you. We don't wanna make your life more difficult than it already is. We just want to help you find direction so you can make better choices. So the choice is yours, sun, moon, or star. What one do you think is going to make you happiest? And then I'd leave them to think about that. In fact, one kid, as I was ending our conversation and turned to leave, I said, you know, uh, from now on, probably for the rest of your life, every time you look up in the sky, you're going to remember this conversation. He said, dude, you're like totally in my head now. It's really a bummer. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's kind of the idea. So it, it is, it's kind of a captivating metaphor and it does stick in our head because we literally are reminded every single day of our life that we have some really important decisions in life. And in the book, I talk about that. that this is probably the most important decision we make in life is the kind of person we want to be. Because when we decide the kind of person we want to be, that'll also determine the kind of spouse, kind of parent, and the kind of citizen in our communities that we'll be. So that one decision reaches all aspects of our lives. I, I love that metaphor. Um, and as we go through more details of the book, as uh, Dr. Dodini mentions, he does in the book separate how these three different types of people um, become these different things, as he's mentioned, like the different spouse, the different parents, the different um, citizens. And there is a lot to unpack. So specifically for this episode, we are going to start with talking about the three kinds of spouses and how that relates to the sun, moon, and star metaphor. But one of the things that really struck me was in reading the book, that initial description, um, I think oftentimes, and, and as we're going through this, it seems like no brainer, like, of course, I wouldn't want to be a star person. It seems like there might not be very many star people because in our minds, we think like, who really is willing to be so deceitful to use their power to kill and those, those types of things. Um, and so it, it's been interesting to kind of see that come to life and actually see the different types of qualities, even within myself and how we can have bits and pieces of those, like the star qualities, the moon qualities and the sun qualities. But ultimately, if 
daily we're making decisions that put us in that sun category. That's ultimately how we become sun people. So I really found that really interesting, but, um, to kickstart this conversation, um, another speaking of metaphors, he uses some really excellent metaphors, but in the book, you use a house model metaphor where you have a depiction of a house. Um, and I would love to dive a little bit deeper into that. So can you explain what the house model is for our listeners? Yes. Um, originally, um, the house model was, uh, was used to teach people about boundaries, especially people that had been through, you know, severe kinds of abuse in childhood and um, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. So they have trouble establishing boundaries with people. And I just kind of expanded on the idea. So it begins at the front gate. So just visualize a house with a picket fence around it and a front gate. So the, everybody that we meet in life will fit into our life at one level of intimacy and trust or another. Each level represents a boundary. And there are certain rules that, that uh, apply at each level in the house. So at the front gate, the front gate represents just casual acquaintances. These are the people that live you know, on the sidewalk of your life, so to speak. They come and go. You're on the other side of the fence on your property. So you don't know much about them and they don't know much about you. So there's a low level of vulnerability and equally low level of intimacy and trust. Um, and hundreds of people fit into our life at that, at that level. You know, the typical would be the, you know, the teller at the bank you go to on a regular basis, maybe, or, or um, uh, check out person at your favorite grocery store, or for parents, you know, they're some of their kids' school teachers that they, you know, they meet once a year on parent-teacher night, that sort of thing. But every now and then someone comes along that catches your interest. There's, there's commonality, there's a sense of attraction physical, emotional, whatever it might be, shared hobbies, interests, personalities, whatever. And so the natural response is, oh, I'd like to get to know that person better. Well, how do we go about that? Well, the two components to every relationship is vulnerability on one side and intimacy and trust on the other, and the two work together. So if you want a relationship to move to a higher level of intimacy and trust, you have to begin by increasing your vulnerability. By that, I mean, you give that person more access to you and you share a little bit more information about yourself. So in effect, the metaphor is you open the gate and you let that person onto your property. And when I draw this out on the whiteboard for my clients, I usually put a series of dots moving from the front gate to the front porch. Each dot represents an interaction, time spent together, right? So we're not gonna run into the house, we're just gonna make it to the front porch, which is the next level. So front porch level relationships are with people that we're getting better acquainted with. A dating relationship when you very first start out is typical of the front porch. And it also applies to relationships at the workplace. Um, most people realize that even though you may spend more time sometimes with coworkers than you do with your family, it's not wise to share a lot of personal vulnerable information at work because you can't control how that information might be misused. And so I think most people understand that's an, that's an important boundary that we, we maintain with, in the workplace. And I've had a couple of clients that learned the hard way when they got set up to get fired at work by a person who was actually, they thought their best friend is because the situation at work had changed and they were now in a competitive environment and the friendship wasn't as important as personal interest at that point. So, um, so a lot of people you invite to the front porch level in your life are not gonna make it any further than that. And that's, that's totally okay. You've spent enough time with them to realize that maybe you don't share enough in common for the relationship really moved to a higher level of intimacy and trust. 
that's appropriate. That's the boundary for that person. That's where they fit comfortably into your life. So quick pause. In your opinion, then, why do you think boundaries are so important? Because as you've been talking, each level within this house has a boundary. And, and why do you think that's so important? Well, boundaries represent a couple of things. One, it creates a safe environment. We decide where, we, where people fit into our lives, right? Um, in order to maintain a sense of your own personal identity and security, you have to be able to set boundaries with other people. That tells them where, they, where we feel they comfortably fit, in, fit into our lives. Now, not everybody's going to respect your boundaries, but you have to be able to set them for your own protection, as well as to define what people are worthy of higher levels of vulnerability. Because some people you meet will not be. Some people pose a threat. So you have to be willing to acknowledge that and limit your vulnerability. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you say in the book, quote, you cannot achieve the highest levels of intimacy and trust in a relationship without being willing and able to tolerate equally high levels of vulnerability, end quote. And why do you think that is? Well, let's, see, let's continue moving through the house. So the people at the front porch that you feel the relationship has the potential for growth, for a deeper friendship, you move through the next step. You, your next increase, increase in vulnerability is you open the front door, metaphorically, and you invite the person inside your house. Well, the living room is typically the first room in the house where we invite guests. So, but we've increased our vulnerability because now that person sees where we live. You know, everybody's house has unique looks and smells and all that sort of stuff. So that definitely represents an increase in vulnerability. We're spending more time with people. We're sharing more information. So at that level, as we learn more about the person, we realize, okay, yeah, I, I like what I see. The more I learn about them and I meet their family and their friends, I see the way they live, the more it seems to resonate with me. This relationship has potential to move to a greater level of intimacy and trust. But some people, you get into their home, so to speak, right? You learn more about them and what you discover is, eh, this is not a great fit. We don't share much in common and I just don't feel there's any, the chemistry just doesn't seem to be there. So that's an example of where the relationship might not go past the living room level and that's okay. In fact, some people tell me that a lot of people that don't make it past their living room are family members. You would think, well, do you, you know, you live with people, you grow up with people. What, wouldn't you trust them? Wouldn't you have high levels of intimacy and trust? The truth is no, sometimes families don't get along. Sometimes we have a, a family member that shares all of our secrets, embarrasses us you know, with our friends and all that sort of stuff. So even if you may, you may share a house with somebody but you may not trust them. Yeah. They might, you might be living next to a star person. That's just crazy. That does happen, <laughs> doesn't it? So that's what we, we learn boundaries beginning in our families. We learn about our relationships with our siblings and our parents. We learn it at school with classmates. And yeah, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes learning these lessons, but we learn them uh, just by dealing with different kinds of people and learning who we can trust and who we can't. So hopefully when we reach adulthood, we're, we're, we're better prepared for this. So some of the people that make it to our living room, like I said, we become closer friends. This has the potential for to carry on even deeper. So um, if living room level conversations are still pretty mundane, that's not true of the kitchen. Well, the kitchen is 
its physical place in the house, it's deeper physically into the home, which metaphorically also means it's deeper emotionally. The kitchen is where families gather. We have meals together. We sit around the, the, the kitchen table. We talk about things. We, we plan for our vacations. We talk about our goals for our education and careers. There's a lot of important part of family life that takes place in the kitchen. And those dinnertime conversations can be really, really important in a child's development. And I really emphasize this with parents is that you really want to teach your children at a young age how to express themselves, how to engage in a conversation, how to listen to others respectfully, and, and how to present your own opinions and ideas with confidence. So that's a, that, unfortunately, it's something that we're losing now in family life is families aren't sitting down to, to a, a common meal, to dinner together and having those kinds of conversations. Hmm. So we're missing out that. So kitchen level friends are people who are, these are your closest, closest, closest friends. I mean, these are the people that would take a bullet for you virtually, right? And, and the few family members who have demonstrated repeatedly their loyalty over time through all of these interactions, all those dots that I draw when I make the house. Um, and some of those interactions don't always go well but it's our ability to solve those problems in ways that honor the relationship that tell both people is that our friendship is more important than the problems we deal with in life. So the people that make it to your kitchen are few. Um, in fact, most people tell me they can count on their fingers, the number of people that they have in their kitchen in a lifetime. Because more often than not, even people that we were close to growing up, at some point oftentimes and during our school years, we be, it becomes a competitive situation. And, you know, two girls that are bosom buddies all through elementary school and they get into high school or junior high and all of a sudden they both like the same boy or they're both trying out for the one position on the cheerleading squad or they're both running for student body office. You know, all of a sudden it becomes competitive. And that's when, that's when friendships either start to die or they move on to even higher levels of intimacy and trust. I think that's a really interesting uh, point that we've discussed with other guests on our podcast that conflict isn't a sign that the relationship is bad or wrong or shouldn't be there. I think conflict gives us the opportunity, as you said, to see whether or not it's a relationship that can grow with increased vulnerability, intimacy, and trust. Mm -hmm. Right. And, it's contention that is the bad thing, the negative thing that you don't want that can't, nothing can grow in contention because there is yeah, no communication. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the principles, the, the chapter in the book also has a conflict resolution model that I teach. And um, I tell couples all the time, the key to a good relationship is the ability to solve problems. And that the relationship is always, always more important than the problem. Because two people who value the integrity of their relationship can solve any problem, literally any problem. But if you make the problem more important in the relationship, the conflict, you won't solve the problem and the conflict will destroy the relationship. So that, that's one principle of, that it's essential, I think, in, in good relationships, especially in marriage, is our ability to, to compromise and to find solutions to the everyday challenges and problems of life. Because the highest level in the house, the highest level of vulnerability, well, as I say, when I talk about the kitchen level, there's a very high level of vulnerability with these people because they know so much about you. Right. You've had all these interactions. So they could do some real harm with that information. 
But because the loyalty has been tested and proven repeatedly, there's an equally high level of intimacy and trust. And so that's the issue. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have a relationship with high levels of intimacy and trust unless you can tolerate the high levels of vulnerability it takes to create them. And the highest level in the house is the bedroom. Um, partially because of the sexual connotation, it's a level of intimacy and trust that's reserved for husband and wife because they have experiences together that they don't have with anybody else. There's a clear boundary around the bedroom relationship. It keeps the right person inside and everyone else outside. And, and so you do not share bedroom level information with your parents, your siblings, your children, your best friends, because that information is not helpful to them. It's not gonna, it's not gonna make for a better relationship. And it, it can, in many cases, it can have a negative effect on the marriage relationship if you're sharing too much personal information outside of that relationship. And I'm not talking about when there's abuse and addiction and all kinds of bad stuff happening, no. I'm talking about just the everyday kinds of information that makes the marriage relationship so vulnerable, but that also creates those high levels of intimacy and trust. I remember growing up and especially while I was dating throughout high school and, and college, that was a principle that I felt like you talked about a lot with us that I took really seriously was that um, in those relationships that, that the information that was shared between me and that person was obviously it took them a lot to be vulnerable with me and that I should be respectful of that and not go and like gab with my girlfriends, you sure. know, yeah. about those relationships. So I, I remember that being something that I tried to, to do well. Yeah. And, and the challenges arise, and I talk about this in the book also, is that some people have very rigid boundaries. They sure. don't let people get close to them, usually because they've been hurt repeatedly in the past when they tried. So if you grew up in a family where you didn't learn how to create kitchen and bedroom level relationships, you're not going to have those tools, those skills when you're, you know, an adult. And so oftentimes, like I said, those people will get hurt. Someone will just move into the living room full time. They'll just build a nice safe brick wall around them. And they don't let people get close because they can't tolerate the vulnerability that it requires to form higher level relationships. And it's usually because they've been hurt when they tried. Other people make the opposite mistake. They meet people at the front gate and take them right to the kitchen. Yeah. In one conversation sometimes. I mean, a lot of you probably have had those situations where you meet somebody for the first time and they talk your arm off and they tell you every personal thing in their life and want to show you their surgery scars. I mean, <laughs> it's- I think I'm that person. I think I am totally an oversharer. I'm like, we're best friends. Let me just word vomit all of my stuff immediately invite people into my kitchen, like way down the hallway. I'm like, let me tell you my whole life. And, and I think we've all met people that seem, I mean, we just seem like we've known each other, you know, sure, yeah. um, and, and we, and things click. And I, I actually seen this happen. People meet at a party, they talk and talk and talk and they talk all night long and they watch the sun come up together and they're soulmates and they've known each other for wow, six whole hours. Um, that's not our kitchen level relationship, is it? But they want it to be because they're desperately hungry for that and they don't know how to create them in a in a gradual step-by-step -step healthy process. They don't that makes sense. That's me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so desperate for authenticity and vulnerability and honesty that I just 
force the connection, I think, with basic yeah, and, the, and the problem with that is if those people can step back and then begin developing a friendship on a gradual step-by-step process, but that's not what usually happens. They have this image in their mind of this soulmate kitchen level friendship that doesn't exist. And so when they do start hanging out together, all of a sudden their differences become very glaring and they don't get along. And they think, oh, I thought you were totally like my soulmate best friend. And now you're not. Okay, well, because I, you had this ridiculously high expectation for a friendship that really has just started at the front gate. You got to give it time. And you don't create kitchen level friendships overnight. I was going to say, people that do that, they have what's called mesh boundaries. They don't have real boundaries. They go from one relationship to another to another because they, they don't have this emotional stability to create a healthy relationship. And they're easy targets for people who will manipulate that vulnerability. They'll take advantage of them. So we've actually talked about this on a previous episode, the friendship Brittany episode, because I think Mm -hmm. this kind of goes along with that. But I mean, as you're talking, I'm relating to a lot of that where I had a specific experience where that was my story. Exactly. So maybe other people are relating to that. So what would you say to someone who is that person that hasn't established the boundaries? Is it possible for someone who has gone to the kitchen or even maybe let's take it to the bedroom level? Is it possible for you to backtrack and go back to the front gate or is all lost? Um, it depends. I think there, there's some relationships that get so they get so ahead of themselves that when they try to kind of rewind and start over, um, there's been enough damage done, enough hurt feelings that you really can't you know, there are plenty of people that jump into a, let's say a physical sexual relationship way too quickly, which really changes the whole dynamic in the relationship. So that's really hard to rewind and go back and and begin a relationship at a friendship level once you've gotten that physical with people. Um, It's not that it can't be done, I've seen it happen, but it usually takes a real heart to heart conversation when people say, you know, I realized that we got, we started off on the wrong foot. And we were expecting way too much from each other. Let's take our time. Let's not spend as much time together. Let's keep our conversations appropriate for where the relationship is. And let's see if it can develop gradually. But most of the people that make the mistake who have enmeshed boundaries, they don't know the rules. They don't know how to unwind a situation and go back to something simpler and less less intense because they've never had one. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why this book well, resonated with me, but also can resonate with other people is that it's, again, it's teaching those different principles in a way that is easy to understand. So specifically now I want to focus on, you know, you get to that bedroom level of intimacy. Um, You are a spouse and the goal is to become a son spouse, right? Where, as you said, in the beginning, you're nurturing your compassion, you're giving light, um, you're giving nourishment. Can you do to nourish that relationship and be and a son's spouse, and be yeah. a son's spouse without going like, well, I can never do this. Like this, guy. like I have to go full speed ahead and like, you know, cutting yourself out before you even get started. Yeah. I, I think the important thing in starting out a healthy relationship is having reasonable expectations. What do I expect from a front gate level friend? Oh, a casual conversation, you know, pleasant interaction. 
Well, if that relationship moves to the front porch, now we're spending more time together. So I should be comfortable opening up a little bit more about my likes and dislikes, my goals. But I don't share necessarily all my personal experiences or values um, until I feel that it's a safe environment to do that. So don't put too heavy an expectation on the other person to be a better friend to you than you are willing to be to them. And it, it has to be balanced and it has to be, you know, in a gradual step-by-step -step process. We live in a time of instant gratification, which is one of the biggest problems in relationships is that we want, we want to know right away whether this relationship has potential. Hmm. Well, you, unless you invest the time and the effort, i.e. the vulnerability, you're not going to know. You're not going to learn enough about another person to know whether a relationship has potential or not. So you don't size up a person just based on their appearance or their income or their IQ or whatever, you know, tangible kinds of things. You get to know each other at a friendship level first. There's no saying that, you know, best friends make best lovers. It, 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 my experience has been this, the, the best marriage relationships were with people who started out with just really good friendships. They shared a lot in common. They enjoyed each other just talking about things and, and experiencing life together. It wasn't over romantic and over sexualized from the word go. And, and those are the things that have a tendency to get in the way of developing a healthy relationship when we become infatuated and we sexualize a relationship uh, to the point where there's a tremendous amount of expectations that comes when that happens. Hmm. That's interesting. That's you were saying that I was thinking about earlier when you were describing just the different types of people, the sun people, the moon people, the star, you say that the moon, what gets in the way for moon people is the earthly things. And so I think in this yeah. instance, there are a lot of things that can get in the way, distractions from technology, um, as you said, like over-sexualization, um, those types of things will get in the way of us seeing the potential and what sun potential we have in relationships, which yeah. I think is really interesting. I think, I think a lot of people, especially if their emotional maturity is stunted, they sit in that moon spouse place of being a little more selfish and fulfilling their needs as number one, or, you know, having a video game addiction or a workaholic or, you know, and, or, and leaving a lot of the mental load and home load, maybe on the other spouse and just expecting the other one to like clean up after them or, or a spouse that's like, yeah. you're my mom, like, or something like that, uh, expecting to be taken care of and not seeing the other person for their value maybe and a son spouse is someone who is emotionally in tune to their spouse and wanting to nurture that relationship as you know that balanced team and he have the other person's needs met as well as their own and foster that relationship as that with that oneness um being the goal instead of the individual's needs. I, I think that might be 
the answer to the question that we were trying to get to becoming the son's spouse is really nurturing the other, which is then in turn nurturing the whole, yeah, the well, partnership. And you say in your book, like it's the, um, I'm probably butchering it, but like the journey of we. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, you know, at the, uh, the wilderness programs with these lot of native American metaphors and, um, in the Navajo culture, if you meet somebody on the reservation and you pass you know, on the street, you don't say, what's up? You know, how's your life? They, they say, how's your walking? Your walking is your life. And you're either walking forward and making good decisions or walking backward and making, you know, poor ones. So a walking of me is a solo. I'm focused more on myself, my needs, my wants. A walking of we is I'm sharing my life experience with others. And together we are walking forward and making choices that benefit each of us. And that sense of equality, um, I mean, you know, we're really focused on that lately with all this equity and equality, you know, stuff, conversation that's going on. But there's three kinds of people in the world and they define equality differently. Um, I mentioned once in the book that, you know, for men and women, so the feminist perspective is we want equality. Okay, well, there's, there's three kinds of feminists. So some feminists want equality of personhood. They don't dislike men. They love them. They want to have a mutually beneficial relationship with men. One where each respects the other as a, as a person, as a, as a human being of equal value and equal importance. That's, that's a relationship that's mutually beneficial. Um, what's a moon feminist look like? Well, they're, they're more focused on equality of power. They want everybody to have the same ability to make the same money or, you know, go to war together or, you know, those, those kinds of temporal things, which are not unimportant, but they're not as important as the person. So we're, we're, we wind up bickering over whether everything is done fairly and equally and equitably in society so that men and women don't, aren't stepping on each other's toes. Well, then there's star feminists. Star feminists, actually, they don't want equality. They want revenge. And I, I can put men in the same category. You know, the toxic masculinity idea, three kinds of men. And man wants equality of personhood. Yeah. Um, a star man wants power and control and domination. That doesn't honor the differences between men and women. And they are significant and very important. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really interesting. And I like the way that you identify what that looks like. Because um, that's something I've thought a lot about. Um, just with my own understanding and reasoning behind women and their divine roles and, and differences. Cause that's definitely something that we talk a lot about on, on the podcast. Slightly, I want to transition to uh, something else that we briefly touched on this, but obviously we talked about, you know, when you are a spouse, the highest level within the house model is, the bedroom. And we've, we've already kind of talked about that metaphor. Um, but one of the things I loved, um, in the book, and maybe it's because it's a story with my grandmother and, um, I was younger when she passed away. And so it's, it's fun to be able to 
hear about her and learn of her through your experiences, but you share your own personal experience with getting um, the sex talk from your mom. Yeah. And she said at the end of the lecture about sex being, she says, quote, a powerful physical and emotional and spiritual experience. It is a bonding agent, the glue that holds a marriage and a family together. Always treat it with respect, end quote. Yep. Um, I don't know. That struck me that it seemed a little bit unique for that time period because I don't know. It seemed like back, back in the day that it, like those kinds of conversations were very hush hush. Everyone was very buttoned up. Yeah. Um, would you agree that that was? Yeah. I wish she'd started the conversation with that. It would have been a whole different experience instead of opening her old nursing textbooks from the 1930s and showing me pictures with, you know, third stage syphilis where their yeah. body is starting to dissolve gonorrhea yeah <laughs> chlamydia so, yeah Cut. yeah well i was 12 years old it scared scared me to death and I, but i still remember what she said at the end um and it is it's i've gee was it i can't tell you how many couples i've worked with that that are not they don't have a healthy attitude about sexuality sometimes because they never taught it you know they, they grew up learning about sex from magazines and bad tv shows and movies and from their friends and now it's worse you know with with kids have access to in the internet is a totally distorted view of sexuality it destroys the intimacy and trust component of it because it's more focused on just the sensual part of it and so and i talk about this in the book it's it's referred to as hebb's rule um, neurons that, that fire together, wire together. Hmm. So what we're seeing now is people that are bringing BDSM and stuff like that into their relationships. Um, and so now you, you connect, you know, arousal with pain or, or, um, with, with humiliation and stuff like that, those neurons begin to wire together. And I've known people that really couldn't perform sexually after a while unless there was pain and humiliation and, and all that kind of stuff as part of the experience. Just like people who are you know, addicted to pornography after a while, they can't perform in their normal real life relationships anymore unless they bring porn into it because the fantasy of pornography seems more powerful than the reality of their sexual relationship in real life. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of harm being done to people because of the explicit nature of what's available to kids at a younger age and bringing stuff like, like BDSM and, and those types of things into an intimate relationship. It destroys intimacy and trust, regardless of what these people say. Um, I've, I've had several couples that I've dealt with that have, that have been in that, you know, into that stuff and it does not strengthen the relationship. So. So as a parent now raising children, how do we teach it with love and honor and respect and honoring the trust and intimacy aspect that you mentioned you feel like kids are missing today? Yeah. How do parents bring that conversation back to focus? Well, you guys know, we talked about this a lot throughout your adolescence. I, I think there is a, it's good to have open, candid conversations about stuff, um, but also you don't want to trivialize it you want there there needs to be a serious tone when you when you talk about sexuality because our society has turned it into just a kind of a trivial exchange it's like a handshake it's like passing out business cards at a 
networking luncheon. We don't even think of sex from a perspective of the real emotional, physical and spiritual component of it that um, we're in the process of watering down and potentially destroying it at the, you know, the direction we're going with things. So yeah, I think, I think teenagers, there's appropriate age for a certain amount of knowledge and information because kids are exposed now to hardcore pornography at a younger and younger age, parents are having to have a pretty, a pretty blunt conversation you know, about this stuff in an age when kids really aren't prepared for it. So that's not helping any um, because they don't even understand what sexual attraction is like until they begin to hit puberty. And, and you've got kids you know, deciding what their gender identity and sexual orientation is before they even get to that point developmentally. So we've emphasized it so much and distorted it that I think kids today are especially growing up in a difficult environment to understanding what healthy sexuality looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I was just thinking, I've kind of been talking about sexuality with some friends uh, or intimacy and, and something that I think a lot of the world is missing and it kind of made me the way you're talking about the, you know, neurotransmitters and everything connecting that during sex, there are released um, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and vasopressin. And those are literally linking you, like yeah. impress in creating the connection just like a mother and a baby that's what oxytocin is right. and so the story that you taught us as kids your all use must choose like sex talk doesn't really say that but it has that con that same message of like it you're bonded to this person and it's literal and that's why you know some people say well you don't want to get your heart broken that's why you don't just go messing around with all the boys or whatever yeah. but it happens you know protect your heart or different sayings but you're literally changing your brain pathways and hormonally connected to a person yeah. after sex and that can hurt you or help you um to strengthen a relationship and strengthen that intimacy but if that's abused then it's going to hurt you even more so to yeah have that relationship have to go from a bedroom to a front porch or to a living room or whatever. So making sure that you're in that, in a safe relationship and that the relationship is worthy of being in that bedroom state is not just about boundaries, but it's like biology as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I mentioned in this book, the years I spent on the road as a rock and roll musician, I saw, I saw a lot of, you know, sexual stuff going on in the dressing rooms and tour buses and all the stuff with the other guys in the band, some of whom were married, um, and it wasn't with their wives. And I watched how it really degraded their ability to form, they, I don't think they were capable of a bedroom level relationship. One guy in particular, um, you know, he had, he wasn't married. He had girlfriends all over the country, but he had a steady girlfriend at our home base in Orlando. Um, but they they had an arrangement. He said, you know, that when he was in town, he was with her. Well, he didn't even keep that arrangement. And so he really lacked the ability to form a kitchen or bedroom level emotional attachment 
because for him, sexuality was trivial. It was just about, you know, pleasure for him. And his girlfriend, you know, we, we, I was, Pat and I were, mom and I were friends with her and she seemed like a really nice girl that she, and she realized that she was never gonna get anything more than that from him because that's all he had to offer. He couldn't mm -hmm. form a committed, real intimate kind of relationship. And I see that, I, we see that with people with, you know, issues with pornography, um, people who have been in a lot of cohabitating relationships prior to marriage, same problem. They, they in some ways inhibit their ability to form a real lasting committed relationship with the person that they really decide they want to be with if they've been in a bunch of other ones previously. Interesting. I think ultimately, as we kind of close out this conversation, we've been given a lot of really fascinating information. And I think ultimately that's what Dr. Dodini's goal is, is to give information in this book, give a lot of research and data and he quotes a lot of different sources that are super insightful. Um, and ultimately in the pursuit of us being able to make choices, right? And so the title of the book is Shine is Shine Brighter, Choosing a Life of Greater Clarity, Purpose, and Joy. And ultimately with this information, we hope that you will choose the sun, that you will choose to develop and act on these principles so that over time you become a sun person. There's so much more to the book that we want to uncover, um, especially at the end, as we've been discussing um, parenting and the role and responsibility of, of parents. That is another conversation that we want to save for another episode about the three types of, or the three kinds of parents. And so we look forward to um, discussing further with Dr. Dodini more about how we can apply uh, sun principles in our parenting and what that will look like. So speaking of parenting, let's transition now to everyone's favorite portion of the segment. This came out of the mouth of my babe. I was with Meredith and we were getting out of the car. We we're about to go to splash pad and she said something she goes oh oh the splash pad is really cool there's a zip line there's a waterfall and a little river it's like gonna be so cool and he goes shut your mouth be quiet and we're like wait whoa what he goes did you just say zip line and we both are like wait what oh parker did you meet he's like i can't say the real word like i was like oh yeah because it's a bad word so I can't say it oh did you mean shut up and he's like yeah mom can't say that word that's the bad word it's the s word <laughs> and I was like oh I get it so you're trying to like in movies when they say shut up that's what he's like yeah but oh, yeah shut up I mean oh be quiet you just said zipline <laughs> it's just so funny he's like oh my gosh shut your mouth be quiet like, and it took us a minute to realize that he was trying to like be funny and say, shut up. Did you just say zipline? Like <laughs> it was, it was funny with his little voice and all his speech impediments. Fred, dad, do you have a, this came out of the mouth of my babe story? Uh, I do. Um, recently we attended the wedding of, uh, first wedding among our grandchildren. 
and um, we spent most of the day, you know, wearing nice clothes for the reception and setting up and all that. And as we got back that evening to the, the house where most of us were staying, my wife went in and she just wanted to get out of those clothes. And she said, um, it's time to take off my clothes. Our 17-year-old grandson, who's 6'3 and weighs 260 pounds, is a huge lineman for his football team, said, Grammy, I don't ever want to hear those words come out of your mouth again. <laughs> Too funny. I mean, I guess that would be a little <laughs> traumatizing to hear that coming from your grandma. From your grandmother, yeah. <laughs> we have been here visiting in Indiana, visiting my parents, so that has been super fun. And um, the other day, Sawyer was upset, and so she was hitting me, and I was sitting next to my mom. And my mom kind of gasped and said, oh, Sawyer, like, oh no, we do not hit. Like, did you know that that is my baby? As in like, she was talking about me, like I'm her baby. And like, I don't want you, my baby to get hurt. And Sawyer was extremely embarrassed. Like you could tell she was like, oh no, like Grammy got mad at me. Like I did something wrong. She later goes to hit me again. And, and I kind of gasp and then she kind of gasps and she realizes like what she just did. And she says to me, Grammy says no hitting at her house. And she apologized right away. And so throughout the week, she'll say like, Grammy says no hitting. Papa says no hitting. And oh. tonight it was so funny. She was saying her prayers and lately she's been saying them on her own. And she'll say like, thankful for, and then she'll like, so today she was like, and Grammy says, thankful for no hitting at her house. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so cute. That but. is so cute. Oh, I wish she wasn't in bed. I want to talk to her now. <laughs> I know. She has been super funny. And it's been really fun to ha have her interact with, with our parents. Stay tuned for more episodes with Dr. Dodini, where we will talk about the three kinds of parenting mm -hmm. and I don't know if it specifically talks about yelling. I mean, I know because I finished the book. It does not. But uh, maybe if you've developed some sun qualities, you won't, you won't feel so inclined to yell at your children. So. Yeah, not like me. Be better than me. Be yeah. smarter than Kara. So. <laughs> but um, Dad, Dr. Dodini, thanks so much for joining us. For those of you who are interested in purchasing the book and reading it for yourself, um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, um, any bookstore you can, you can find it online bookstore. If you're also interested in talking about some of the principles that you, we have talked about here on the podcast or from the book, you can also contact Dr. Dodini at there are three kinds of people at gmail.com. Yeah. Three, there are three kinds of people and that's the number three um, at gmail.com and we will make sure that we link all of that in our show notes but thanks so much for joining us we hope that you will stay tuned for next week and don't forget to rate review repost talk about us and you know we do a post on our social media platforms on instagram and on facebook uh each week the discussing the episode and we'd love to hear feedback on you know, any of those posts, uh, your favorite, uh, one of the best things you can do besides 
rating and reviewing on Apple podcasts is to repost maybe your favorite episode or a little blurb from, uh, each week, uh, you know, your favorite episode on your Instagram and people really seem to respond and get, um, directed towards us. And we are so grateful for the love and support that we have with, from our listeners, but thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye.